One of the constant themes that runs all the way through the Bible is conflict. Particularly the conflict between godliness and ungodliness. From the earliest chapters of Genesis on, throughout the whole Scripture, there is a constant unrelenting conflict between God and Satan, between Cain and Abel, between God's chosen people Israel and the Canaanites and the Philistines, between David and Goliath, the wise and the foolish, the righteous and the unrighteous, between believers and unbelievers, between the kingdom of light and the domain of darkness. And every person on the face of the earth falls into one side or the other of that conflict. Every person in this room falls on one side or the other. There is no neutral ground. There is no gray area. There is no ability to stand and be a neutral party in this conflict. You are on one side or the other. You are a combatant in a cosmic conflict, and you are on one side or the other. One side is dark and one is light. One of the metaphors that God uses throughout the Scriptures to describe this constant conflict is the metaphor of two cities. One side is represented by the city of man and the other by the city of God. The name given to the city of man throughout the Bible is Babylon. And the name given to the city of God throughout the Scriptures is New Jerusalem. And this morning we are going to look at these two cities. We're going to look at the city of man. And next week we're going to see the city of God. And we will see how God commands His people to live as citizens of the New Jerusalem in the middle of Babylon. So what are the origins of the city of man? What is it like? Where did it come from? The city of man has its origins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where we read the account of man's fall into sin. But we have to go back further than that, beyond that, before that. We have to go further back in time to the rebellion of Satan himself. And I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 14. We are going to be looking at lots of passages today, and only one of them is on the screen. So, wake up. Follow along. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. There's a lot of debate about this passage, but it definitely seems... That Isaiah 14, 12 to 15 tells us of the history of Satan's rebellion against God. Isaiah 14, 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will, raise, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Notice very carefully what Lucifer or the the star of the morning, says within his own heart. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. 
at the core of Satan's rebellion and fall from glory was his lust for power and authority and glory and freedom from God. He says, I will make myself like the Most High. I will be God. Now turn back to Genesis chapter 3. And follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. What is the essence of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden? The root of their sin was the desire for autonomy, the desire for self-rule, for independence from God. Think about what actually happened. Eve did not immediately reject the word of God. She did not immediately reject the word of the serpent either. Instead, she looked at the tree for herself says in verse 6 that she starts evaluating things. She looks, she sees, she decides. And so on the one hand, she has the word of God. On the other hand, she has the word of the serpent. And in order to even begin this process, she first has to commit herself to independence from God. She says to herself, why listen to anyone else? I will make laws for myself, I will decide on my own. Yes, God has said things about this tree and how I'm supposed to treat it, what I'm supposed to do with it, what will happen if I don't. That's what he has said. But this beautiful serpent has an equally valid opinion. After all, it's, it's a matter of interpretation, right? I mean, when God spoke about not eating the fruit, and when he said that if we ate it, we would die, that was a long time ago. He wasn't even really talking to me. I wasn't even here. He was talking to Adam. And I'm sure that that's what Adam needed to hear. But Adam didn't have the enlightenment that I have. I have new information. I have insight. I have discovered new truths that Adam wasn't aware of. And the serpent knew that I could handle this new information, that I could that I would be ready for it. The serpent knew that I would be able to understand the deeper realities behind this tree. And he knew that I would make the right choice, the choice that was right for me. That's what's going on. And so this is the essence of sin. Man rebels against his dependence on God and everything, and he wants nothing more than to be independent of God. And the root of Adam and Eve's sin was the exact same root as Satan's sin, the desire to be like God himself. That is the bait on the serpent's hook that lured Eve to take the fruit. 
You will not die if you eat this fruit. On the contrary, you will finally experience what real life is. God is stingy. God is egotistical. God is selfish. God is a miser. He wants to keep things for himself. And he knows that the day that you eat of that fruit, you will be just like him. And you'll know good and evil. You won't need him telling you. The bait on Satan's hook was the bait of autonomy, the bait of self-rule. If she ate the fruit, she wouldn't need God to tell her what was good or evil. She would know on her own. She could be autonomous. She could be independent. Free to make her own decisions and live her own life as she saw fit. And that's exactly what she did. Verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... She saw, she discerned, she evaluated, she made a choice, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And in choosing to be free from God, in choosing a life of autonomy from God, in choosing to make their own decisions based on their own desires and their own assessment of truth and of the world, even in direct contradiction to the very word of God Almighty himself, in choosing autonomy, they received death. They were instantly cast down into the condition of separation from God and hostility toward God and the complete inability to do anything to bring themselves back to God. That is the origin of the city of man. The city of man, this entire ungodly and humanistic world system and culture that has dominated the world throughout history has its origins in the sin of Adam as he followed Eve in a literal historical garden on this earth. And the foundation of the city of man was laid by Adam and that foundation is autonomy from God. And some of you in this room right now are absolutely committed to standing on that foundation. You have committed yourselves to standing on that same foundation. Every time you read the Bible or hear the unflinching preaching of the Word of God, you stand above it. You stand above it, just like Eve did, and you evaluate it, and you make your own choice. You read the Bible and know exactly what it means, and what its implications are for you and your life, just as clearly as it was for Eve, God said, do not eat of it. When you do, you die. And you hear the word of God directly spoken to you as you read it. But you say, well, it's all a matter of interpretation. And you might even give lip service to being a godly man or a godly woman, but when God actually speaks directly to you and to your situation in this world, in detail, un unescapably, inescapably, you, when He speaks to you, you find a million subtle and nuanced ways to utterly reject it. Utterly reject it. All the while keeping up an image of godliness and even humility. It's as if you've been inoculated. A vaccine, an inoculation, takes a little piece of the real thing, 
a little piece of the virus that's dead, injects it into your bloodstream, and your body builds up resistance against it so that when the real thing comes along, you don't catch it. Many of us have been inoculated against the Word of God in exactly the same way. We've heard it. We've heard enough of the real thing. We've built up an immunity to it. So that when the real thing comes along, it doesn't touch us. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't do anything. And in the end, you'll do whatever you want to do. You'll sleep with whomever you want to sleep with. You'll think whatever you want to think. You'll look at whatever you want to look at. You will devote your life to whatever selfish and self-absorbed and self-indulgent pursuits that you want. And when someone who loves you comes alongside you and says, Sister, you're wrong. You get offended and you brush it off. You're inoculated. And after all, it's just a matter of interpretation anyway. Did God really say that I must keep my mind and my body pure as I relate to my fiancé? But I know better. Did God really say that I should lead my wife and my family? But I know better. Did God really say that I should honor the gift of womanhood? But I know better. Did God really say that I should welcome God's good gift of children? But I know better. They're nasty. They're not for me. Did God really say that I must honor and obey my parents? better believe I know better. I know better because I have been enlightened. And I am advanced. And I am sophisticated. And I am modern. Yes, the culture around me just happens to be telling me all these same things all the time. Day in and day out. Year after year. But I have come to these things on my own. I'm autonomous. I'm a free thinker. Yes, the serpent told me that I wouldn't die if I ate the fruit and that I would become like God. But I'm autonomous. I'm a free thinker. And I made my choices based on what's best for me. The foundation of the city of man is autonomy from God. Independence from God. And some of you are absolutely committed to standing on that foundation, all the while making a show of being humble, godly men and women. Throughout human history, that society of autonomous man has expressed itself in many different ways. It expressed itself when Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4. It expressed itself again before the flood in Genesis 6. And this whole system of ungodly, independent, arrogant man comes to concrete and concentrated expression in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. Turn with me to Genesis 11 and look what, it, look what happens. Genesis 11, 1 through 4. 
Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east, that, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, what was the essence of this city? Men and women wanted to be totally independent of God. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll have to obey God. That's what they're saying. God's the one who told man to scatter and to fill the earth and subdue it. Let's build for ourselves a city so that we don't have to do what God has commanded us to do. They wanted to make a name for themselves and they were going to do it by building a tower that would reach all the way into heaven. Do you remember Satan's words from Isaiah 14? I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Remember Satan's words to Eve. You will be like God. This is exactly the same thing. Mankind is coming together for the express purpose of achieving fame and comfort and pleasure and ease and security and salvation and glory all apart from God. Completely apart from God. And so what did God do? He scattered them. He put an end to it. And He scattered them. Did they get the point? Of course not. They did not see that all their attempts at freedom from God and autonomy and dependence from God would lead them to death, would lead them to destruction. They didn't see it. We have been consumed with this path of independence from God from, this, from then until this very moment. And we see the ultimate expression of all of that. The ultimate expression, the ultimate description of the city of man, this culture and society of humanism and man-centered autonomy from God in Revelation chapter 17. Turn with me to Revelation 17.1. We have the man of God, the Apostle John, being given visions of real things, but in the form of visions. And notice what John sees in this vision, Revelation 17, 1 and 2. What he sees is a prostitute. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And in verse 4, he gives a description of this woman. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Who is this woman? 
Verse 5 tells us. On her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So who is this woman? Who is this harlot? She's Babylon. She is the city of man. John sees a visual representation of man-centered, God-hating culture. And what is she like? What are the characteristics of this Babylon, the city of man? I'm going to give you three. Number one, it's worldwide. Look at verse one again. It is worldwide. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Look at verse 15. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This woman that John sees, this embodiment of the city of man, is upheld and supported by and carried along by the people's and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. In other words, this is a worldwide system. Wherever you find human beings, you find the city of man. There is no place on earth where Babylon is not in control because the pride and the arrogant autonomy of Babylon is alive in every human heart. Wherever you find men and women, you find Babylon. In verse 18, The angel tells John, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over all the kings of the earth. In chapter 18, verse 23, it says, all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. In chapter 19, verse 2, it says that the great harlot was corrupting the whole earth with with her immorality. This is a worldwide system. The city of man is worldwide. There is no way to physically escape her influence. You cannot hide from it. You cannot run from it. Even if you're Amish, you are ruled by the city of man. It's a great tragedy of monasticism and things like the Amish. They think the evil's out there. It's not out there. It's in here. Wherever you go, There you are. And the evil is right there with you. As a second characteristic of the city of man, it is seductive. What does John see in his vision? He sees a harlot. He sees the mother of harlots. He sees a gaudy whore dressed for her night of work. Verse 4, 17.4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And and what does she do with that cup filled with that filthy wine? Verse 2. With her, the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. This harlot Babylon seduces all the inhabitants of the earth. She seduces us. That's exactly what a harlot does. A harlot holds out the promise of pleasure and excitement and joy. A prostitute makes you think you're going to get something good by consorting with her. There's a striking description of the seductive powers of a harlot in Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7, starting in verse 6. Listen to these words. Listen to this description. 
This is a description of events that happen every day and every night in this town, literally and figuratively. Proverbs 7, verse 6, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Some of you, literally, have done just that. The prostitute seduces and lures and leads fools astray. And that is exactly what harlot Babylon does to all the inhabitants of the earth. She seduces us, she fools us, she tricks us, and she leads us astray. And all the while, we think that we're getting something good out of it. We're think that we're, we think that we're special. Do you notice what this harlot says to this man? He makes him think that she was the one that she wanted to spend time with. He was special. She was going just for him. We think that we're the ones who have these thoughts in our heads. That we're the original ones. We're the free thinkers. We're the enlightened ones. And we do not know that it will cost us our life. So how does Babylon seduce us? What, what is Babylon, what does it promise to those who embrace her? The bait on Babylon's hook is the same bait on Satan's hook back in Genesis 3. It's comfort and ease and meaning and pleasure and knowledge and power totally apart from God. Revelation 18.3 For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Revelation 18.9, the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her. Revelation 18.19, all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. It's completely wrapped up with the stuff 
of our lives. Comfort, ease, pleasure, autonomy from God. The wine with which Babylon seduces all the inhabitants of the earth is the wine of physical comfort and ease and prosperity and security totally apart from God. It is the Tower of Babel all over again. The people at the Tower of Babel said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be self-sufficient without God. Let's get comfort and ease and security and pleasure on our own. Let's be autonomous. Let's make our own way. Let's secure our own future. Let's not do the one thing that God said we should do and be blessed in it. Let's try to have those blessings without any connection with God. That is exactly what the harlot Babylon says to us. Our whole culture is built around the basic assumption that you do not need to know God in order to know truth or in order to know right from wrong or in order to have security and joy God is completely irrelevant. You have the right and the power to make your own decisions apart from God and to chart a course apart from God and to define your life apart from God. And I am not talking about those pagans out there. I'm talking about us. We go through this life as if God was nothing. Nothing. We smile, we sing, we read our Bibles, but it means nothing at the core of what our lives are about. Because at the core of what our lives are about, we want nothing more than to do what we want. Even if all of Scripture and 2,000 years of godly men and women throughout church history tell us the opposite, we want to do what we want and we will be blessed by following our path because we know better. There's one more characteristic of the city of man. It is bent on our destruction. Revelation 17:6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Revelation 18:24 And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. If Babylon as a whore cannot seduce you and make you drink from the cup of her abominations and the filth of her adulteries, then she will kill you and she will get drunk on your blood. She is bent on your destruction. The city of man has two goals. Either to seduce you to seduce Christians to compromise with the world or to wipe them out. Either way, she's been on your destruction, destruction by compromise or destruction by death. So Babylon, our culture, this harlot, the city of man, either wants to make you so much like all the unbelievers around you that you have absolutely nothing to say to them or it wants to scare you into silence by its threats of persecution or unpopularity or hardship, or death. That's exactly what she's doing. And she's very good at it. Many, many Christians 
think that they're being deep and authentic and reasonable simply because they're thinking all of the thoughts of the culture. Thinking all the exact same thoughts. Thinking that we made up, made them up. Thinking that we came up with them. And that it's a sign of our enlightenment and our being deep. It's only a sign of being naive and fools. Just like the man in Proverbs. We fall for it hook, line, and sinker. All in the name of being relevant, which of course means we're completely irrelevant. Because we're saying the exact same thing. She wants to seduce us and make us just like her or she wants to kill us. So what do we do? In the middle of a world that hates us and wants to either destroy us or silence us, we have to get our bearings and we have to think. And we have to see with very clear vision. And what we have to see is what is the destiny of the city of man? What will finally happen to this humanistic, man-centered, God-hating, wicked society? He tells us in Revelation 18, 1 and 2. It says, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Laid waste. Revelation 18, 6-8. He says, pay her back even as she has paid. And give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come. Pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Revelation 18, 20-23. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. In chapter 19, it says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. You understand what they're praising God for? Destruction. Wrath. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. The destiny of Babylon is utter destruction at the strong hand of God Almighty, and God commands us to rejoice at her destruction. And if you do not rejoice at even the thought of her destruction, you do not fear God. And you cannot be his disciple. Which leaves us with one last question. What is our response to the city of man? What do we do with her? How should we respond to this wicked, worldwide, seductive, bloodthirsty, doomed culture in which we live? Listen to God's call in Revelation 18, 4 and 5. He says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. What is God's call to us? Come out of her. It's the same call that God has given throughout history to his people. Come out of her. Isaiah 52.11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves. Jeremiah 51.45, come forth from her midst, my people, and each of you save yourselves from the fierce anger of the Lord. When John the Baptist comes preaching the gospel, he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, deliver yourselves from the wrath to come, deliver yourselves from this evil and perverse generation. Come out of her. The city of man is doomed. The worldwide seductive, bloodthirsty culture that we love so much and want to fit into so much and want to please so much is doomed. And it will be utterly destroyed by God Almighty. And if we do not run for our lives out of Babylon, then we will be destroyed with her. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, as people who do not really live in Babylon, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul, your soul is at stake. Being seduced means that we don't even know it. Now, God is not calling us to be monks. It doesn't work. That's not what he means by come out of her 
and be separate. There is no place on earth where we can physically escape the city of man. But God is commanding us to separate ourselves from the evil and the wickedness and the pride and the filthiness and the autonomy of our culture. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look deeply into your life. Look at your dreams and your motives. Look at what you daydream about. Look at what really moves you. Look at what you value. Look at the things that are most important to you, really most important to you. Not the Sunday school answers of God and Jesus in heaven, unless it's true. But look at the things that really, really move you and motivate you. The things that are actually most important to you. And be honest. Look at the way you think about everything. Look at the grid that you filter everything through. Look at the glasses that you read everything through. And ask the question, at the roots of my soul, whose voice am I listening to? This is about seduction. This is about listening to voices. Whose voice beguiles me? What seduces me? What bait am I constantly biting? What seductive wine of harlot Babylon am I drunk with? Am I a willing citizen of the city of man? Now listen, all of us, all of us bite the bait and drink the wine. Is that who you are at the core? Are you willing to see it and run? If you are, then here's what you need to do. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Listen. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Here's the deal. God makes better promises than harlot Babylon. And there's no hook. I will dwell with you. I will dwell in you and walk among you. I will be your God 
And you shall be my people. I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. When you hear those promises, do they move you or do they leave you flat? Because if they leave you flat, you will fall to the seductive promises of Babylon every single time. The only way to resist her temptation is to have better promises. And these promises are promises that have no hook hidden in them. These are promises that will give you life if you believe them. And those promises will give you power to resist the seduction of the harlot. Listen to what Paul says. He reasons with you. He reasons with you and he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, not just possessing them on, in paper and ink, but having them, owning them, grabbing a hold of them, sinking your teeth into them. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you fear Him? Or is that something that someone told you you didn't have to worry about anymore? Well, that's awful seductive, isn't it? That's exactly what we want to hear, isn't it? He commands us with gospel promises firmly in our hands to perfect holiness in the fear of God. 